Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. We have a repeat guest, Dr. Gita Pensa, MD, who's an emergency room doctor and who is with us on episode number 18. If you haven't listened, listen. If you have listened, you'll remember her 12-year story of a multi-million dollar lawsuit, malpractice lawsuit, that taught her a whole bunch about herself, served as a mirror to her own personal development, and ultimately on the appeal. Second appeal? I can't remember. Was it the second appeal? You the won. First first appeal. I, yeah, I won the I won the first time in 2011. Then there was an appeal and I went back to trial in 2018 and I won that too. <laughs> and uh, one of the things, if you're listening on audio, if, if you're on YouTube right now, you can see this. But one of the things that I want to point out about Dr. Pensa and I is, whereas I'm a big old white guy, she is a petite, young, female, brown woman. And so we differ from each other in ways that set us up to have a different experience of the healthcare delivery system, the healthcare education system, life in general, especially in these United States. So one of the things that's gotten a lot of traffic on our LinkedIn page recently is a post that we put up about microaggressions based upon gender and racial bias. And so what I wanted to do is have a conversation with Dr. Pensa about those things because we come from opposite ends of the spectrum, at least where gender and race and all of that come in American society at this point in time in 2021. And what I'd like to do is just start off with a little story. And if you'll humor me, Dr. Pensa, Mm -hmm. uh, I told you the story earlier, and I think it's quite instructive. One of the things that I do is I tour the, the country teaching about how to prevent burnout. And one of the causes of burnout is when you are being discriminated against. And I tell a story about to all the big old white guys like me in the audience about how a simple example of gender bias is when a guy asks a female colleague, hey, Cheryl, it's Mary's birthday next week. You're going to bring the cake, Right. And if I were to if I were to say that to you, Gita, what would be going through your head if I actually said that to you? Well, you know, a couple of things. Like I, it would really depend whether or not I felt like bringing in the cake. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I, I've at least reached this place of equanimity where I don't feel like I have to bring in the cake. And if I feel like saying to that person, like, "Why don't you bring in the cake?" I feel like I could probably do that and get away with it. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if I, when, when, when I was younger, if I would have done that. And now I've kind of circled around to the like, I don't know, what's my schedule like? Okay, I guess I could get the cake. You're so sweet. Okay, cool. Well, here's the lesson though, for, <laughs> for everybody who is wondering what I'm talking about, right? Because normally what ends up happening when I say, you're going to bring the cake, right? That's gender bias. All the white guys in the audience look at me with their shoulders shrugged going, what are you talking about? I'm just asking for a cake. And all the women in the audience are seething, head down, trying not to poke their head up too high and stand up and yell something. Oh, yeah. Because, and this is why this is bias. A guy like me only asks the female person in the audience, and they ask the female person in the audience because 
they're women and they expect mm -hmm. the answer to be yes. I expect it to be yes. Because you're a woman. And what's happening is the woman who says no to that request runs the risk of being labeled with B word. Yes. I mean, honestly, like most, the cake is one thing. The saying no is a whole other thing because there's a host of, I mean, basically women saying no in general. Right. Is, can I say bitch? It's bitch criteria. Oh, of course. But this particular thing about the cake is very telling because I don't think that, you're right, I don't think that most men would recognize that as, especially when there's two women in the room and 10 men, that selection of like, hey, you woman, will you get the cake? Or not even will you, like you will, won't you? <laughs> I think the way that you're bringing the cake. Right. You know, you're going to bring it, right? Yeah. So let's, yeah, we can, we can talk about this, you know, up and down. I do want to say that I want to frame the, the context of, of my perspective as being my own perspective, as being one stop on this spectrum of people's lived experiences in terms of microaggressions. I mean, I know that I know where I am and I know what I've experienced. I also know that it would be far different if I were black. It would be far different if I were homosexual. It would be far different if I was female and black and homosexual. So we can have this conversation to the extent that both you and I have these lived experiences. And I do to a degree. But I want to make the caveat because I think that people who are listening, sometimes it's it's hard to listen to perhaps a white man and someone who's considered, you know, a, a model minority to have that conversation. Like, do we deserve to have that conversation? So, so I want to preface it by saying that and, but, but yeah, I sure I have my own lived experience and it's not going to be different. I mean, it's not going to be the same as other females or people of other races, but I definitely do have a framework within which I address it. Yes. I am going to have other people on to have the same conversation that fit in all the categories you're thinking about. So the next person I'll have this conversation with will be Maisha Claiborne, who is a black single mom doctor. One of our coaches lives in Atlanta, does anti-racist training in boardrooms around the country. So we're going to have plenty of conversation there. Fantastic. That's a voice I want to hear. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember when I came to, I was in Atlanta for a training a couple of years ago. And we had had lunch together because I was in town as we were doing our pleasantries and parting. She said, okay, I got to go over to the other side of the track. <laughs> so I, I'm sure that Maishi's got plenty to talk about. Yeah. What I want to do is also be inclusive in the pool of people who I talk to about being discriminated against. Because again, I come from a population of a slice of society that typically doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. The people who look like me are the problem and it's their behavior and their awareness that has to change. And I think it's great that you are doing it as a white male. Big old white guy, big old straight white guy. <laughs> yeah, I think that it will, you know, I think it does matter that there are allies that speak to it because, you know, you might get their attention in a way that a diminutive brown female might not. Well, in looping back to our conversation, it doesn't matter any woman who says no and hasn't thought about that conversation about the cake or the cupcakes or the gift or the card or whatever the present is, right? If you haven't thought about mm -hmm. it and rehearsed how you might say it in a way that dips underneath the socially accepted radar and gets you out of it scot-free when you get the B word, 
it's like the scarlet letter. It doesn't wash off. It's a tattoo on your forehead. Sometimes that can destroy your career, depending on the culture of the organization. Which is very unfortunate. Right. It's like, hang on a second. That's completely unfair. I've watched it happen in organizations before. In that same setting, I was training a bunch of doctors from Indiana, and it was about 100 white doctors, Caucasian doctors, men and women, and one black guy, one African-American gentleman sitting at the center table. You know those round tables you have in a big conference hall, right? And I'm in the front. And I've got my lapel microphone on, and I'm, and I'm doing that piece about the cupcake. And this one, one black man raised his hand silently, and the whole room went dead, and all the faces turned towards me wondering what I was going to do now. And I said, yes. And he stood up and he said, I hate it when you call me articulate. Everybody had been looking at him. All the eyes turned back to me. Half the shoulders shrugged and said, what? That's a compliment. They didn't say it, but it was in their eyes. What? That's a compliment. And it took me about a beat to catch up with him. And what I said was, I said it out loud and I usually leave holes in sentences so people can fill them in. <laughs> you only said that about him because he is black, right? And you don't mm -hmm. feel the need to say that about any of your white colleagues. And I still, even after that, there was a whole bunch of eyes up and, and recognizing, but there were still people in the room who didn't get it, didn't get it. So what I want to do is sort of out some of these examples of microaggressions that people experience every day, every week, that people who look like me might not be familiar with and might not get it. I want to put some of those out there in real time and just ask what it feels like. And if you've been able to rise above that kind of daily paper cuts, how you did it, that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. That's an interesting question. So I'm really glad that we have the term microaggression now, because I don't think that when I was younger, I had the language. I didn't have an understanding of what that meant. I did know um, what it felt like to be discriminated against, to be different. Uh, my father came to the United States in the Jim Crow era, and I grew up in the 70s in a predominantly white neighborhood. There weren't a lot of other immigrants where I was. So I was the child of immigrants and was a little, I think, probably culturally unaware, maybe a little lonely for a little while. Because I just, you know, you didn't, you, you as, a, as a kid of immigrants, you have to learn how to fit in. And sometimes I don't think I even understood what the insults meant. You just get a feeling that they're talking about you in some kind of way. The tone. Yeah, there's a tone, right? And you don't even understand what it is that they're saying to you or the ways in which you're being excluded. And then it sort of begins to dawn on you somewhere in there that, oh, <laughs> like they think that I am not as good as they are because of like X, Y, or Z. You know, fortunately for me, I think I was gifted with the degree of perhaps outsized confidence in some ways. And I was raised in a household in which there was a very fierce belief in my abilities, which I don't think everybody has, but was instrumental, I think, in being a female who really legit believed that I could do whatever I wanted to. And then, you know, the world has a way of, of teaching you that what your parents teach you isn't exactly what everybody else thinks. Um, and that's a lesson that's sort of gradually learned. I think, again, as a, as a child of immigrants, like I paid a lot of attention to social cues and to try and pick up on like how I should behave to fit in and that kind of thing, because I didn't have, you know, the goal was assimilation 
then. And I wasn't great at it. I remember being in fourth grade and it was when, and, and that when the day that mm. John Lennon was shot and everybody was like beside themselves. And I didn't know who that was. I was like, who the hell is, I mean, I didn't think who the hell I was in fourth grade, but I, to myself was just like, yeah, who is that? Like, why is everybody so affected right. by that? I was cl- I, not clueless, but like I, it was the first sort of entrance into the like, oh, geez, you know, home and our culture is one thing, this sort of protective cocoon of people who think that you're amazing and will do all sorts of great things is one thing, but like, you don't really know anything about what's out there. And so I started getting clued into like, oh, gee, I got to like pay more attention to how to be and how to fit in. And I found again and again and again that I couldn't actually do that. And so, and part of it was, you know, being a a girl who was trying to beat out the boys on the math team or whatever. And part of it was being a brown kid in a predominantly white, pretty well-to-do. I lived, I grew up in Delaware and like it was that we had busing back then and I wound up at a pretty relatively well-to-do school. But this whole again and again and again, trying to fit in, like realizing like I'm, I'm not, I'm just this sort of, you know, square peg round hole problem was probably when I started internalizing a lot of these microaggressions. Some were micro, some were macro. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Like in eighth grade, there a lot of kids belonged to like a, a country club kind of thing. And they had a, a what was called a cotillion. I didn't uh, know what the hell a cotillion was, but we were south enough that that was right. a thing. And there was one other Asian kid in my grade and we were all kind of friendly ish, you know, with a lot of the girls and we were not invited and uh, not that we belonged to that country club, but it was someone within that society kind of thing was having a party and we weren't invited. And it was very interesting because I kind of asked someone like, why can't she and I come? And they, there was just like a, like, I think it's just for white people. (laughs) Which was a very frank thing to say, and I probably appreciated her saying it, but it was that first. And yeah, and so for for me, I mean, I have memories of a little kid as people don't know what slur to use, but like, you know, I we'd had the N-word written on our garage, and I remember my dad kind of going out and trying to wash it off and that kind of thing. But what struck me more in that moment is how my father reacted to, to those things, not so much it was a weird, it was a weird thing. Like they didn't use the right slur. Right. Like I'm not the N word. I'm a dot head. Like that's not like oh, you mean what, here? what, who, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's like, what kind of thing are you like? Who, who is the idiot that like, you know, gets to the house, but, what? <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> hang on a second. That's a sign of resilience right there. You got the N word on your garage door and you rode them for not using the right slur. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, What's right. Like what kind of an idiot did this? But right. so, so yeah, so there were, there were things that were overt and then there were things that were covert and the covert things were just knowing that always had to work a little harder. You had to behave a little better. You had to be a little nicer. The whole female male dynamic in terms of classes, like, you know, I was a smart kid. I was unapologetic about it and if not defiant. And that probably helped me a lot because I wouldn't have it. And I think that there was enough in me that was, I had a track record, right? From a young age, like I I figured out that I was smart and I had people around me who were encouraging me to be smart and there wasn't anything external telling me that I shouldn't be. So I was, despite knowing that I had to like, you know, really bring it 
every time in school, I had this confidence that I could do it. That had served me very, very well. And you just sort of get to this point where if you amass enough confidence, if you don't suffer from imposter syndrome, if you have enough people that believe in you and you believe in yourself, then I did get to a place where I was just like, you know, that's whatever these things are are meaningless. And what I want, what I want is a chance to prove myself. Because if you give me that shot, I am going to show you that I've got something up my sleeve. It's getting the shot. It's getting that shot. Getting people to notice you is hard. And can I ask just a couple of quick data points that will help me? Sure. Where are you in the birth order of your siblings? Oh, interesting. I Two children. I am the younger. I have an older brother. Okay. And what does he do for a living? Oh, he's a doctor. Okay. What kind? <laughs> he's an emergency <laughs> physician, just like Gotcha. Me. Okay. And then why did your family come to America, your parents? Oh, my God. That's a long story. Okay. My father was born into abject poverty in India. And his father died when he was two or three, which made it far worse. If you know anything about the situation of widows in, in India, and this was colonial India, this is the 1930s. Um, so independence is 1937. He was born in 1931. He just had his 90th birthday in January. So wow. he was essentially rescued by a traveling monk. There was an order of Hindu philosophy. And it's it's really mostly, it's called a Vedanta society that's mostly based around service and social good. It's amazing, wonderful. Actually, if you want to understand the philosophy, I think a really great place because Westerners tend to be a bit reductionist in how they think about imported ideas from Eastern religions. But Jay Shetty has a book called Think Like a Monk, which is, I don't know when it's from, I I read it not long ago, but it is a pretty good illustration of what that's all about. But regardless, they built an ashram where near the village where my father was from, and they essentially wound up adopting my father and his siblings, one of whom died young um, of smallpox, actually. And his sister lived all her life there as, as a sister, as basically a female version of their monks. And my father had been raised in that tradition. And then it became very apparent, very clear that he was super bright. And that was so staying and becoming a monk was not his, um, his dharma. We use that word of like purpose. And so his purpose was elsewhere. And so he became right. a very, very good student. And then it turns out that basically he decided to live a secular life. And then in his 20s, wound up coming to USC to finish a PhD in organic chemistry. And then, you know, I don't know how many years after that, had an arranged marriage with my mother. They met the day before they were married and then moved to the United States because that was, he wanted to pursue a secular life and wanted to challenge his abilities. And in those days, in the 50s, there were not a lot of Indians coming to the United States. So if that was this incredible opportunity for him. And so the ashram and all these people in the villages, they raised enough money for him to take a steamership to the United States, to New York, and then a bus to California, to USC. And there was no- With your mom? No, they weren't married then. They weren't married then. He wanted to be, to have something uh-huh. to offer he had nothing. What an adventure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my he married my mother. This is, see, when I talk about a tangent, this is a super tangent. So when he married my mother on the recommendation, my mother came from a little bit of money and her father used to go to the ashram to like meditate and they would talk about this boy who was just doing amazing things. And then he sort of decided one of his daughters was going to marry this man. And so that was 
eventually engineered. And so, uh, <laughs> and so this, and so they were married. They met the day before they're married. And then two days later, he brought her to the United States. And this is a woman who'd never worn a coat. Uh, and they moved to Niagara Falls. So long story. Um, but, but, <laughs> hang on a second. I love the, I love the period and the end of the sense. And they moved to Niagara Falls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. Then and here's then here's me. me. Um, so I think probably. Can I ask just a quick question? Sure. Uh, about I, I'm never sure whether I'm pronouncing it right. Cast or caste, cast. the caste system in India. Mm. Was he from one of the lower castes? Is that is that how this works? Oh, my God. Now you're really going to get into it. No, he was not from a lower caste. He was actually from quite a good caste, but they had lost all their mm. money because I mentioned that pr this was colonial India still. This is pre-independence. So a couple of generations before that, their family and a number of other families had fallen out of favor with the king in the area mm. and had gotten mm. uh, all of their possessions stripped away and just summarily oh, tossed gosh. out. So they were living as untouchables, but the caste, caste is something that you... You don't get, you don't get, to, you, you, don't you get hang demoted. on to whatever your cast is. It doesn't do you a lot of good if you've got no other possessions, but yeah, a cast actually, that's a whole, cause that brings us back to race, but cause that book is about an amazing book, amazing book. book. Amazing but, uh, <laughs> but yes, to answer your question. So otherwise there would not have been an arrangement between my, my parents. They were a, right. Right. He could, he, he couldn't mm -mm, have married her. Mm -mm. Right. But that made it okay. So he had a label that was enough to get his foot in the door. And so, and of course he came to America. That was what you did then. Of course he, he had he, doctor children. And of course they were really smart. <laughs> of and of course. They yeah. Well, cheap. that was where like, uh, yeah, it was, you're going to be a doctor or an engineer. Like that was that. Of course, for me, there was some expectation that I would become a doctor and then quit to take care of my kids, but that did not happen. And there was also <laughs> certainly the expectation that I would marry an Indian man from a similar caste from the same area of India. And that did not happen. Oh I my. married a, a white guy with blonde hair wow. and blue eyes, but you know, whatever. These are the things that change when you assimilate into like a, into a new country. But to your point, I think I veered off off script. No, no, but. that's that's perfect. <laughs> what, now, again, my story of burnout is three generations deep, right? It was my mother's mother who wanted to be a doctor. Mm. And in the 1930s, went off to the University of Illinois and came back a teacher. My mother went to the University mm. of Illinois in the 50s, wanted to be a doctor, came back a teacher. And I was the firstborn male grandchild. So I was destined to be a doctor, right? To fill mm. out a three-year, uh, three-generation fantasy in my family. And at the time that I burned out, both my mom and my grandma were dead. And I mm. had been a doctor for 10 years, 35,000 patient visits, 500 deliveries. So, so mm. many times these things are multi-generational. What I'm so grateful for in your personal history, as I sit here and contemplate it, is that your father has brought into the world such a blessing as a, a woman like you who says, just give me a shot and I will show you what I can do, which is all he wanted in the beginning was just give me a shot and mm -hmm. I'll show you what I can do. I'll show you what I can it do. It makes Absolutely. complete sense. And Absolutely. I'm also very grateful for what often happens. And that is that along your way, and I'm making an assumption, I may be wrong and you can tell me otherwise. But along the way, as you were achieving, 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 as the brown girl who didn't get invited to the cotillion, <laughs> nobody took you down a notch physically, abused you, attacked you, mm -mm. showed you your place. There was no trauma, no abuse along the way to have slowed your progress through the ranks. No. And I'm, I'm very 
grateful for that because I understand how that would change things and that would change my outlook. When I mentioned before that I'd had enough, you know, by the time I was really up against any kind of like overt sexism, like by the time, you know, university, medical school, I had had that whole tender period where you, you know, a flower is trying to bloom, someone could step on it. Nobody did. And I was all right. Like those, the microaggressions were there, but I had enough, I had enough opportunity to grow and strengthen and find my roots and realize like who I was and what I was made of. Um, And that doesn't happen for everybody. I'm well aware. So I know the ways in which I have been quite lucky. I cannot say that I had ever, and at any point until actually litigation, I would say, but I, at any point thought like, I cannot do what I want to do. I will find a way to do it. I will find, you can, you can stand in my way. I'm going to find a way around you. Like I that's just what I was, that's what I was made of. And it's in a weird way, I think surviving like that was this odd combination of like my father's philosophy and the fact that my mother, they had an arranged marriage. They could not have been more different. And my mother is, I don't know, whatever you get when you cross like a firework and a chili pepper, like my mom is no monk. Um, and, so, <laughs> and as much as I aspire to be like my father, I have a lot of my mother. And so I don't know, there's a weird thing, but I would not be, I'm sure there could have been an episode that would have squashed it. It just didn't happen until I was old enough to be able to have some, some sense of, of self that was strong enough to to combat it. I mean, I remember being in medical school and working with older surgeons or whoever, and they were just, I remember in anatomy class, we had this old professor, this is at Penn, who would show like his anatomy slides were like pinup girls with the sciatic nerve drawn through her ass or whatever. It was just, (laughs) no, that's the truth, you know? And so I, I hope I can say ass on here. I'm sorry. But, um, (laughs) there you go. You swore twice and I haven't even, I have sworn twice. Well, that's, you know, they're pretty mild swears. (laughs) It gets, it gets worse, but being so comfortable in my own skin, like I knew that he did not think of me well just by how I looked and the fact, I don't think he wanted women in his class. I certainly don't think he wanted a brown woman in his class, but thankfully anatomy is an objective thing that you can study and you can prove like I can do this. Right. And so he was not my boss. He was not anyone that was in any position to keep me from doing anything. And of course things are different when that's the case. Right. And so you have a totally internalized locus of control you feel capable of taking on any challenge as long as you're given a level playing field. You've not been squashed, crushed, abused, and you come into the present as a mother of your children fully capable and realized, despite the fact that that I'm sure if we were to slow-mo camera, you moving through your work day, that there's plenty of those same microaggressions occurring. But mm-hmm. because of everything we've said before, you have learned to be Teflon to it Mm -hmm. all. Having said that, could you just take a breath and let your awareness float back through the last couple of weeks of your life and specifically your professional life as a physician? Hopefully you've worked a couple shifts in that time frame. (laughs) And just remember for us, if you will, and if there were any, any, anything that stands out to you that could be called a microaggression, some small little thing that was based on the fact that you're a petite brown woman 
that might have eluded the eyes and the awareness of somebody who looks like me. I have. Oh my goodness. I'm an emergency physician. Right. I can't, you don't get through a shift without that. Right. Right. Cause you take care of angry people, drunk people, like stuff comes out. If I told you the swear that someone used this week, I will not say it. You know, people will, they, they, I think people now know what slurs to use or like, and then they can sort of guess like I'm, you know, Indian or, or Pakistani or like sometimes they, they use like Muslim, like it's an insult. I'm not Muslim, but it doesn't matter. Right. Um, so these things that come out of people's mouths when they show themselves as patients. So I deal with, you know, racial hostility from patients all the time, all the time. It does not bother me. Well, and I must admit that until today, I had no place to put a phrase dot head. I'd never heard that before. So that was an 80s word. I don't I mean, now I'm sure that I'm sure there are others. People are very, quite creative, too, when they're when they're thinking of things. But but the N word is where people go. Like that's like they're if they're looking for the most hurtful thing they can say, they think they think they go to that word. And so, you know, when they don't have words and they use other words that are like the, the slur this week was you Indian C word, ah. um, you know, and that was a whole, that was a, that was a whole thing. Well, I think that's gender related. <laughs> it's gender related. It's gender related. It's, it's color, it's color, race, all those right. things in one. I, you know what it's, and it's funny, like the week before it was someone who this, you know, this kind of hurt, I guess this did kind of hurt. It was a patient that I had, I, I don't know how many, it's a, a, a repeat visit person. Frequent flyer. Uh, yeah. Right? We're not supposed to use that term anymore. I mean, yeah. Oh, frequent. really? I can. No. I'm not an emergency oh, you can. room doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, it was there who was, who was a high utilizer. <laughs> ah, an outlier. <laughs> he was a high utilizer. I had taken care of this. I've been at that, that particular hospital. I've been at for 20 years. I have seen this man so many times over the years. I have done many, many kind things for him, whether it's like the turkey sandwich or finding him a detox bed or like whatever. Like I always nice. treat this man very, very, very well. And last week something happened and he called me very mean names and associated them with my being a brown person. And just like, he let me have it. And I was just like, oh, after all I've done for you, like that's what you reduce me to. Like, it's just, I'm, I'm legit hurt. <laughs> like that kind of stung oh. people. I don't know, you know, whatever they're going to, whoever they are. I've had people who wouldn't, uh, you know, I've had, speaking of Muslims, I've had Muslim men who would not let me be their doctor. I've had, I've taken care of people with, you know, swastikas tattooed on their foreheads and, you know, just people that, you know, are disinclined to want Dis you to be their doctor. Inclined. <laughs> disinclined. I like it. Um, and I think part of our education in medicine, at least as it has been, I suspect that things are changing, but I'm not, I'm not of this young gen. You called me young in the beginning, which I very much appreciate, but you know, I graduated as my, as my daughters say, I graduated from medical school in the late 1900s. Um, <laughs> I like it. So I'm not that young, but perhaps it's changing. I think part of part of learning how to be a female non-white person in medicine was learning how to manage that. I think now there is a very rightful expectation that it should not have to be managed. There is a much different bar for what is considered acceptable, which in terms of the, per the, the recipient of that is maybe a good or a bad thing. It's a good thing for the world. It's a tough thing 
for the recipient, for the person who's on the receiving end of that, you know, it is a useful skill in some way to learn to be Teflon. And I would say that you can um, raise your expectations. You can say that it shouldn't happen all you want, but it will. There's going to be a time mm -hmm. lag on that one. If, I, if I'm coming up through my residency program and I'm 27 years old and I have been coddled in an envelope of the faculty staff telling you what their pronouns are and all that kind of stuff, right? And you pop me into an emergency room at graduation with the current level of our communications in society, it's going to hit you like a wave right in the face. That is probably true. And so I will say that there is a skill set. I don't know whether the ways in which I've adapted are healthy or not, but they serve me. Right. And they've served me. They've served me well. Tell us the skill set. Oh, well, I mean, basically everything I was alluding to before, like I definitely have a, an ability to divorce the behavior of other people. I can dismiss it as ignorance and it does not affect, I don't internalize it at all. And that honestly comes back to this part of having been lucky enough to somehow have all of those things mitigated as I grew up. But I wound up in a place where I can objectively look at that ignorance and say that it is meaningless to me. And a large part of that is because I've achieved what I want to achieve in life, right? If that were the barrier to my achieving those things, it would obviously be very, very different because it would hurt much more because it absolutely was decimating what I wanted for myself, right? right. That didn't happen. So now having achieved certain things, knowing who I am and what my worth is, I don't really, it actually comes back to the cake thing from the very beginning. And my answer to you then, my answer is not, to say like, you are a total jerk for even asking. And you might be because you didn't think about these things. If I really am feeling put out by it, like, nor do I feel that I have to swallow that, I'll say something. I have that, I have that wherewithal, but I've also kind of reached this point of equanimity where sometimes I'm just like, I got time on Tuesday afternoon. Shirley's a nice person. I don't mind picking up the cake and he is an ignorant ass, but hopefully I'm not feeding into it, but I'm not going to let that bother me because I would like to bring Shirley a cake. <laughs> I have reached this place where like you're being an ignorant, you know, whatever so you and are, so. an, an ignorant so-and-so might annoy me, but it doesn't change anything that I think about myself. Right. And just to be really clear, that's a superpower. Perhaps. So to be able to receive what's intended by them, recognize it as less than charitable mm. to have an emotional reaction to that, but still have the center of your consciousness, the center of who you're being, be a calm place that recognizes, oh, I don't know why they're saying that about me. That's not me. And be detached from those things is right. a skill set. It has to be with an equal footing in a power dynamic. Right. right? If there's someone that has, has power over my life. Right. That is being aggressive towards me. It has not happened much in my life, but maybe right. a couple of times, but like who is, who has power over me, who is not, does not see my value, does not understand my worth, is clearly biased. That's a rock that I'm going to have to figure out my way around. Is holding you down, is denying you the fair shot, is uh, keeping the playing field anything other than level. I'm going to bring up just real quick to throw into the conversation. I'm not sure how it applies here, but I think it does. A thing called the fundamental attribution error, human bi cognitive biases. Fundamental attribution error goes like this. That person who treated you mean, the attribution error says, 
if they're treating me mean, they're a jerk. If I'm treating somebody mean, I'm just a, having a bad day. I'm a good person. I'm just having a bad day. But if they're treating me mean, they're a jerk. So I'll just toss that out there into the mix for contemplation. That's an interesting thought. I don't know how to, I'm not sure how to. Well, it comes into the, it comes into play on the second symptom of burnout, which is uh, cynical, sarcastic, compassion fatigue. When you lose mm. the ability to remain equanimous towards your uh, the person who's yelling things at uh, you, when you lose the yeah. ability to be empathetic for whatever is the acute issue that they're there in front of you before, like the gunshot wound, mm. you know, screw that mm-hmm. guy, wheel, mm-hmm. wheel him into the back room and have, I don't know, <laughs> put a moving box on his, on his bleeding thigh wound, right? And we'll just let him right. sit there for but a while. But you view that as you're having a bad day. It's not a fundamental issue. With, with them, yourself. it's a fundamental issue. They're jerks, right? But with them, it's a fundamental. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can. I can absolutely understand that. And the the way the context that I always bring things back to litigation because that's what I talk right. about a lot and I think the way that I would try to understand that is in terms of managing your emotions when a plaintiff attorney is trying to right. get you. And so when I talked about when I said before like when people are manipulating you or they, you know, are harassing you or trying to traumatize you if they have power over you, obviously that's different than somebody who doesn't. And so in litigation for me, like, yeah, that was not good because I couldn't manage that. I found I had a really hard time with people coming at me and saying I was a bad doctor, everything I'd strive for all that time. I worked my, how many times can I say ass in one podcast? I worked my ass off um, well, to be, <laughs> that's three, that, that my third strike and I'm out. You know, I worked so hard to be this person and they're dismantling it. Right. And for whatever, whatever they're, you know, it had less to do with being a woman or being brown. Although I think they probably thought I was a pretty good target because I was those things. Because if they could just get a jury who was... Should we put her in front of a jury was the question they were asking themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'm quite sure that figured into their calculus, but I don't think it worked out <laughs> the way they imagined. <laughs> but, but they kept trying. They tried for a really long time. But. Well, and let's just let's just tell everybody, listen to podcast number 18, and you'll understand why it didn't work out the way they planned. No. has to do with the dance contest <laughs> and a whole bunch of other things, okay? And then let me also point out to, to anybody who's listening right now and saying, wow, Dr. Pence's got her shit together. I just want to point out, she was raised by a man who was raised by monks, and for years, her summer vacation was to go to an ashram back in Kerala, the area of Kerala in southern India. <laughs> so you're talking about somebody who has absorbed and has almost certainly practiced some pretty intense mindfulness skills to reach this point where she can float through the emergency room and be called things and not have it shake her. Fair enough. Float's probably an exaggeration, but... Um... <laughs> I guess, I guess you could, yes, I'm, I'm sure that is part of it. I'm very sure that is part of it. I will say that in episode 18, when we talk about a period of my life where, which was very difficult in that whole decade where I just kind of, I did fall apart. So when you say that there, these are superpowers, they were not superpowers that worked for everything. I mean, at all times in my life, but I also do think that those, those skills did come in handy when I finally realized that I needed help and like trying to find that place again of feeling, I would never say that I feel bulletproof, but feeling like I can handle things a certain way, 
yeah, I think a lot of it is rooted in in my spiritual upbringing, which was a very column A, column B kind of upbringing. So we can talk about that some other time. Like, what is the what is the Bruce Lee quote? Except, ex- I oh, I got to think about. It. There is a, a a Bruce Lee quote that's basically like, accept what works, reject what doesn't, and then just make the rest your own. Absorb what works, reject what does not. I've got a quote from Farewell to Arms. Goes like this, right? You were talking about you you broke down and and. It wasn't always easy. The quote goes like this. The world breaks everyone. And afterward, many are strong at the broken places. Mm -hmm. But those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. So (laughs) So the world breaks everyone and afterward, many are strong in the broken places. I think that's one of the lessons of burnout, right? When you recover from a point in time when you said, I can't go on like this any longer and made a change in your life. What you get is superpowers, special awarenesses, wisdom. The challenge for burnout is always that some people don't make the crossing. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's why, again, I'm going to say what I've said so many times before, we can't prevent all physician suicides, Mm-mm. but we can reach out to everybody that we're worried about in a heartfelt fashion, tell them you're concerned and offer your help and a shoulder to lean upon. I'm happy that you crossed your little chasm (laughs) during those 12 years of your litigation. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm going to put a bow on this and we'll come back and talk again sometime in the future. But thank you so much for sharing with us enough about your family history that we understand how you can float through the inevitable microaggressions that we know come your way. And I will have Maisha Claiborne and other people on the show to talk about this because it's one of those things we have to talk about. Just like burnout, it's one of those elephants in the room in any healthcare discussion is the presence of bias and discrimination and aggression and abuse and bullying and psychopaths inside the healthcare industry too. Mm. Thank you so much for having me. It was yeah. a, a fun conversation. You bet. Dr. Gita Pensa, MD, emergency room doctor, Go see lesson number 18 or, or podcast number 18, where we talk about her 12-year litigation journey. And go see and listen to and experience her podcast, Litigation, the L Word. Is that how it is? Is that how Doctors and Litigation, the L Word, yeah. Doctors and Litigation, the L Word. She's got uh, This American Life quality production on it. It's a wonderful story. I recommend it highly. Thank you, Gita. Have a great day. Thank you.